this, I'm getting excited about it because I could imagine uh, people doing this. Like AI is presenting you with the options to explore and then you put your hexagon and you go fucking explore them. And then you come back and, or you write your story in the process of exploring that. AI could be really useful there because if you have a writer's room with people from your culture, you will be thinking in similar ways, but let it challenge us. But in order to do that, it has to wake up from the Western bias, from the gender bias, from the all the bias you can collect when you siphon internet. Mm -hmm. So how that problem will be solved, I have zero idea. But it needs to be solved for AI to be useful in that way because it will yeah. go to obvious places. Hi everyone, my name is Balash Kegel, and this is the AI Scientist podcast, home of artificial intelligence, body and soul. And I'm really excited today to host uh, Tatiana Samopian. Tatiana is a creative storytelling coach and speaker, and she works with writers, but mainly she works with organizations who want to hire the writers to help them in selecting the best stories they that they want to produce. So welcome, Tatiana. How are you? Good. Thank you. I'm so happy to, uh, that you're here. And uh, there's so many topics I want to explore to tour your mind. I, I looked at a couple of your presentations on the internet about stories, storytelling and AI and how AI affects this space. Um, I hope to explore instead of explain that you say mm -hmm. in one of your talks. Mm -hmm. And I think in the tech community, are, we are really enthusiastic about AI in terms of cognitive science or learning about intelligence. This whole, whole research started like that. We want to recreate intelligence, but we have much less information about how it affects uh, the people who are using it, who are not inside the tech community, but in the creative community, especially, of course, with, uh, with GPT in the writing space and Midjourney and Dali in the in the image space. But we are researchers, so I'm personally very open and very curious to learn about it. It's fascinating how uh, creative writers start to use GPT, all the fears around it, etc. So in one of your talks, you mentioned that you can talk about AI without talking about AI, because it's basically what we need to understand is not necessarily the the technical aspects of uh, how to use GPT, but about uh, storytelling and what are stories about and why we are fascinating about stories and what makes somebody a good writer. So these are the topics that I want to explore first. And of course, we'll weave in the AI because it's coming from all kinds of angles. So my first question or set of questions would be around uh, stories. So we are all fascinated by stories, even those who are researchers or scientists who work in a space where things are sort of frozen, not necessarily have a history. We still go to movies, we go to theater and we enjoy the stories. So, 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 so why are we fascinated with stories and, and what makes a good story? Well, that's been explained many times in different ways. They provide some sort of coherence in, in the experience, so oftentimes an inspiration about what's possible, cathartic release, 
about you know the feelings of 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 sadness or just sense of being lost and alienated you can recognize yourself in characters so there is a sense of resonance between your experience and what's the, out there presented to you which makes you feel seen connected to other human beings so they provide really a sense of connection to others and a very passive sense of connection is a safe way to connect you're receiving it and you feel like i'm part of this human human family in a way but most of all they organize our experiences and oftentimes they reduce them pretty powerfully from the fullness of the lived experience stories will boil it down to some sort of narrative that we follow uh, usually without questioning a lot. So stories can both open us up to life and really program us uh, in a way that we live um, just following scripts uh, that are keep continuously reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. So much like AI could be a double-edged sword or any type of technology. So I think one of the prime technologies of human race is story. Uh, and it's as the one way I define stories is a mechanism of, for emotional manipulation. That is what a story is. If it's not manipulating your emotions, doing nothing, it's, it's a poor story. So there is a sort of mechanic there that's meant to take you by the nose and lead you where it wants to lead you. And depending on the complexity of story, what it's rooted in, in what kind of experience, really the richness of the experience that gives gives it uh, inspiration it can be a wholesome experience to be led that way or it can be quite a harrowing experience it can do many many things but for sure it will manipulate you will not you're, none of us are meant to, to remain neutral when engaging with a story we're all meant to kind of be pushed one way or the other by the story so it generates and anger it, oh, hmm? it can hmm? generate anger it can generate fear it, it or will movies or, or happiness thing, or... yeah and, uh, and usually it will also want to invite to the worldview it's presenting it's also a mechanism for convincing to to drawing you in through emotions to like emotional reinforcement to see the things the way the story is to frame the world the way the story is presenting to you and to kind of of course depending on your on the capacity of the viewer or the reader to step back we can question stories, but really skilled storytellers are masters of manipulation, whether they do it consciously or unconsciously, but it's the kind of description of the job. Um, uh -huh. It reminds me to so many things, but uh, in one of the presentations you say good stories should be not realistic, but true to life. Yeah, I, I and, see it. And, and that's, a, that's when I try to explain it to somebody, it's really because it's, they look like synonyms, but they are not. Right. Realism is really trying to capture the what it is that we are describing, what it is that we are seeing. For example, the, our time, we will try to really present it as it is. Uh, if we try to present something from 100 years ago, we will tr try to keep every detail of it. That's realism, you know, and it can be completely fabricated in the, its content. You can it can have all the trappings of the outer realism, but not feel true to life to actually how people are in the situation you're presenting. And I, I usually use the example of a lot of um, old Star Trek episodes, like the, the psychologically charged ones. They are completely unrealistic in the setup, but when it comes to how people react to certain situations when pressed, and how do they solve problems, and how do they connect, and how do they engage with each other, it's completely true to life, for better and worse. So they really, in 45-minute episodes, they sometimes can, can really 
present present such richness that we fail to achieve with 10 hour series nowadays and i i i, I remain fascinated by that writing and that um, those those shows so they are true to life but not realistic so science fiction can be true to life as well or even cartoons and realistic yeah. stories <laughs> can be really like not true to life <laughs> in many ways yeah 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 you also said somewhere that the dramatic real stories are really good yeah sometimes I, well, I use examples of stories about war and becoming a refugee you know because there's such drama there already and you would expect it to be engaging but a lot of time these stories are more didactic than than true to why they're really there to to make a point uh, to make you feel a certain way and depending on if if how skilled they are done uh, sure, you can get along for the ride, but there are some stories that don't treat war or becoming a refugee as a thing in and of itself. It's just something that's happening. They don't have many opinions. Like the writer will not have too many opinions in advance about what the situation is, and they will explore what can happen there. And suddenly, a very unexpected things may happen to characters that you just didn't see coming in that crazy situation. They will not go for the obvious stuff. They will kind of, even if the situation is highly pressured, there will be spaces for silence and connection and play and craziness, which is what happens in life, even in pressured situations. And anybody who's been through that will kind of testify that, yes, it can be absolutely nightmarish. And then suddenly it switches to something completely different. So supported by life experience, usually uh, those kind of stories become more interesting than written just about how life, how we think war is, how we think anything is really. So not not writing from preconceptions, but writing really from curiosity about what lived experience can offer that we don't see coming. Yeah, I mean, it, it relates to a little bit to GPT. Because you know the way it works, it just tries to predict the next world mm -hmm. from context. And mm -hmm. I lived through the 20 years where in the beginning it was just trying to predict the word, next mm -hmm. word from the last two words because the computation capacity wasn't there to have a bigger context and of course they were very silly but they looked like you know the the the, the terms were okay because the three words were somehow coherent but the sentence sentences were like not going nowhere mm -hmm. and then gradually it, it was built up so mm -hmm. it started to produce grammatically correct sentences that was a big step a lot of people didn't believe that it was possible because we tried to do it like top-down linguistics mm. grammar and then suddenly this this uh, really dumb technologies because it's basically just trying to predict the next word from the, the context it started to produce meaningful sentences but the paragraphs were still going from nowhere to nowhere <laughs> and a lot of us believe that it will stay somewhere there it's not possible to have like a storyline mm. coherent storyline built word by word mm. And so, but then when they work, what they do is basically they, they have a probability distribution over the vocabulary, mm -hmm. given the context, which means you have a vocabulary of a million or 50,000, depends. But in every time when I speak, you mm -hmm. expect the next world no. coming from your model of mm -hmm. language, but also world, like what do I want to say, right? And then I say something, it shouldn't be 
if 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 it's something that you you didn't expect you have a really big surprise and this is where it's, it relates to what you you told about the the interesting story that the storyline is like a sequence of tokens basically and then something surprising happens if it happens too much you get lost yeah right if it's uh, too uh, if it's if there is only one word it you it always chooses the most probable word and it's boring and it doesn't uh, convey any new information so basically when we speak you expect about 10 words at every slot on average mm. so that's like a cognitive scientific uh, fact that we measure and then it boils down to something I want to tell you and then that that actually conveys you information because I select one of the words out of the 10 which is information and then you see what I want to say but if I start speaking completely uh, unprobable words one after the other it's good poetry it nowhere it yeah well so this is where I want to get actually that you can, you have like a, a knob that you can set yeah. to more uniform, or less uniform, and it's actually a knob in GPT you mm. know, that you can set to weirdness. That make, yeah, it's... exactly. How how but... creative it is, but somehow it still doesn't capture for me creativity. So it 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 gives you more surprises, but not necessarily an interesting story. Well, it's not an unhinged random surprise. We are what what is it like one one of the axioms of information theory that I remember from way back at uni? The value of a datum is in inverse proportion to its predictability, right? The less you expect something, the more interesting it is, the more valuable it is. Exactly. And this is what captures attention. Right. Even in, in a theory that says information is divorced from meaning, it still looks from something that will be meaningful to you when it captures your attention. How, if, however you define meaningful or no, information without or with, with meaning, it will look for something new and fresh. So when, you, when we create, sometimes um, I give a lot of like specific examples when I, when I work with writers. And I said, this is going too linearly. Like your story is linear and it goes to all the predictable places and life can be like that but very often it isn't like have you ever had an experience in the line with this what you're writing that kind of shook you just presented something new to you and if they have lived through some things if they kind of aligned what they're writing with the experience and i don't mean just bi biographically there's like a, a great spectrum of alignment but thematically there should be an alignment in some way so that you're not writing just something from you, you pick up something and because it's cool and it's in the air right now in the culture but you actually have some personal resonance with it usually there will be stuff from life life will unfold even during the writing period in ways that feeds into story by bringing something new and fresh but if if the person is writing totally from just making stuff up, it, the mind is so oversaturated with stories that it will go to all the predictable places. So we have layers and layers and layers of, of, of just me, media-fed storytelling into us for now for hundreds of years, but decades intensely. And I don't think people in the 70s and 60s had the same problem, creatives, that people have today. It just, even 80s, even 90s, even maybe, but for the past 20 years, this has just been getting worse and worse. So what my work often boils down to is some sort of excavation of, of the origin of the story that's that's kind of just taking away the layers of, of other stories 
that the person is not even aware are there because they they become the part of the mind already. And um, we are not about, like people want to have original stories in in terms of no this has never been told and seen. But life tends to unfold in in pretty predictable phases for most people. So it's not that we need to live completely bonker lives to be interesting, but we need to freshly engage with the lived experience and the originality comes from that when you rediscover life for yourself you don't just take what you're what you're being imbibed with what's imbibed in your like already in your system but you kind of you you leave that aside and you rediscover even the obvious again then stuff can happen that's interesting to present to others but it take it takes an alignment of living and writing living and creating at the same time so that you pay attention to what's actually happening in your daily experience and you, that enriches the story so these two two li like lives and life and job are not separated and then to do that well it requires a lot of self-awareness a lot of ability to experience and witness the experience at the same time without getting too immersed in it Without getting on the other hand, on the other hand, not getting into your head about it either, intellectualize it too soon. So there is a sweet spot of experiencing and witnessing it. So there is like a, some space between. You can still have some some view over what's going on, but you are not creating a story about it immediately. So you're not getting into a narrative. So it's, too it's like a dance of yeah being inside and then inside and, out, inside, and, and you, you really stay attuned. You live. You live fully. You most of all you feel fully whatever is happening and you become really curious about what what what's this what about this reaction is really pre-programmed inside me what the, were the choices about the reaction how because usually what's what's boring in stories is characters who are results of their past i cannot tell how boring that is like okay they lost the child that's why they're like this they're i don't know their parent didn't love them because my mom dropped me that was, I remember, Alan Watts talks about, I'm like this because my mom dropped it, dropped me when I was a child. And she was like that, but her, because her mom dropped her. And for sure, I mean, you know, traumas and all of that affects us, but life is lived in the now. And there is something about the choices we do in the moment that really are not the past. There's something that we actually do now that creates troubles for us. So that I'm curious about, how is this character in the now, not just who, what happened to them when they were like five years old or, or even yesterday, to be honest. So there is um, there's a lot of programming about past influencing present in the culture. Yet we are living in such cultural moment. It's, it's very rarely questioned and it leads to predictable stories when people are mostly the characters become and people it's characters represent how we see each other really they become like symptomatic reactions to their traumas like typical symptomatic reactions to their traumas and i'm like oh jesus this is boring then this the character is too predictable and the trauma is leading to the story not the yeah. moment one of the things i'm still wondering about you know is what do do we know what makes the story good and if we do, why is it that I can count on my one hand the interesting series of the last 20 years? But it's not zero either. No, I know. So you have like five series. We all know what all those five series. The latest one is uh, Yellowstone for me. Yeah, 
I love I, I showed Yellowstone to to writers I was working with just because it it um it comes from a, such a different value system than most progressive Westerners, you know, the left wing, and uh, and it kind of shows the logic of the other side. That usually in in culture, especially in American, you know, they are all called almost unwashed masses, the people who voted for Trump. Even though in the series they didn't, you know, they they make it really clear that these are not the characters that would vote for Trump, but they do present the conservative America. But they also tell you a story about what's worth preserving. Why are they conservative? Is there something that's worth conserving in the times of just relentless progress? And it's done in a nuanced way a lot of the time. It's it kind of you kind of get where they are coming from, and um, absolutely not not something you can dismiss. So it's a challenge for for a typical European thirty something um, screenwriter to engage with that because it's a completely alien world. It really. But is. yet, I'm from Hungary, Eastern Europe. I did, I have to admit, I spent a semester in Bozeman. Mm -hmm. So that really resonated with me in the in 93 when that was the year, I think, when they put the wolves back in, in Yellowstone. Uh -huh. cool. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, the connection is just crazy. But still, even beyond that, I'm not an American. I don't, uh, you know, participate in these culture wars. Mm, exactly. Yet. It's a really interesting story. It's mm. that bad bad guys are not typically bad. The good guys are not. You don't even know in the beginning who is good, who is bad. There is no, mm. like, there are some really bad guys just to get the, the story going. Yeah. But uh, it goes sometimes to ob obvious places and then, and then it didn't surprise you. So it, it was, yeah, it was written with care, I would say. So I, I, I threw it in as an example of a story recently and I, I showed it to my class of writers. Um, yeah, but there are not too many. Even I, I, no, I don't watch as much as I used to because I read so many scripts. Uh, mm -hmm. Your mind, like, I don't watch for fun anymore. Uh, and if I have free time, I, I do other things that have nothing to do with me losing my eyesight on on scripts anymore. So I, I try to do stuff that's has not that just isn't about reading. So. You know Taylor Sheridan, who's the writer of the story. He mm -hmm. had a new series called Lioness mm -hmm. that we watched with Bear. It's good, but not five star good. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, like even the same person doesn't know what made that story good and cannot repeat exactly the same quality. And this is where I'm getting interested in what you said about AI, because one of the things you said is that. You talked about the average mm -hmm. and how average is okay, but just don't expect to get paid for it anymore. Yeah. The thing is, I'm not sure if we can produce those five series if we, we are we don't have the space to write also the average and make a living of it. Mm -hmm. So how is it going to I mean, give give a little context of what you meant by that, uh, and maybe I mean, let's speculate like how how the world will unfold. Where? Well, I I can share my first encounter with the Chat GPT in December last year, just when it showed up, and it became open for public, for the public, and uh, <laughs> it it was really funny because it wasn't average in my first interaction. It was actually really interesting. It was in later interactions that I discovered, you know, but it, my first interaction with it was amazing. So I was with a friend who is um. Uh, academic researcher, she's, she lectures about AI uh, as well. 
and we had it opened on the screen, but we were just talking to each other and we ended up talking about war and us growing up as refugees. We both come from, from former Yugoslavia. We both live in Sweden. And suddenly, you know, when you have these conversations with friends, you think you know, but you go to places you never shared before. And it really connected. We didn't know things about each other, like what we went through in detail. And it was really quite emotional when we we, we, we were like, crying and laughing because situations some of the situations we remember were hilarious like you wouldn't expect them to happen in war and when you're on flight but they did so we were sharing about that and then we because both of us have a background as we studied languages and all that we said well we were refugees but now there's this word migrants what's the difference between a refugee and a migrant really so we went to chat gpt okay it defined the difference and it did a pretty good job and then i don't even remember how we came to that we just wrote, we looked at each other and said, okay, write us a joke about migrants. And it goes into its politically correct mode immediately. Said, my, my, migration is not something to joke about. Millions of people are being dislocated every year because of the war, hunger, blah, 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 climate change. And we go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are migrants and we like joking about it. Go ahead and write, write us a joke. And it goes, okay, how does a migrant take their coffee to go? <laughs> it was brilliant i mean it was in all its simplicity it was to the point like it was a good freaking joke so i came home like let me see what this thing can do so i remember sitting here and, and okay let me take something i know really well then i go like okay write me a new episode of sherlock in stephen moffat style the creator one of them, Mark Gettys, Stephen Moffat style. And I want the plot to be based on Hawaii. And I want the killers to be a pair of Siamese twins. And I want Sherlock not to want to work on the case. And that was about the prompting I gave it. And immediately, zoom, completely coherent story, which was a blend of, well, vague, obvious stuff and absolute brilliance because you know what it did it goes i said give me sammy's twins as murderers he said one of the twins is a murderer the other one doesn't know about it and you go i love this and immediately it gives you something that you i didn't see it come it wasn't even on my mind so a good writer will know what to do with that it actually immediately push the story to the level that me to take, I would immediately take it uh, to thematically about, be about the ambivalence and the cacophony inside of us. So these twins, you know, there is a Siamese twin inside. We, we have the split needs. We have split agendas oftentimes. Um, just take the basic need of, for closeness and autonomy that's in most people. Like I want to be in an intimate relationship, but I need my space and it's never the right moment to have both and la la la, you know, we, we live these things pretty regularly. So you could actually make a, a story, a good, good writer would make that story about something real and use those twins, you know, play around with the twins, but the twins will really, really show a deeper inside, like internal twist that any given person uh, can experience on any given day. So I would know what to do with it. Like I played with it, you know, there was it. And I realized you don't need a writer's room for this. Hmm. Actually, it was a complete, it was in the style of the writer I asked. As and if, if your job is to add episodes on an already existing franchise or IP that's established, 
really you can get really far with this and one or two gifted writers you don't need as many others the whole machinery around creation will, will shrink and it is already this happening already so to say that it's just average and it kind of sub 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 part of humans i don't think so it can actually be the skilled human can do a lot with it an average writer won't do much with it it will end up being average of course so depending on who is using it but i wouldn't dismiss just how much more quickly and in how many more interesting places stories can no that's exactly i'm not saying I'm not, I'm not dismissing it either it's 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 in the direction you're saying is that it will shrink the body of writers and yeah, then since there is some kind of randomness in who's producing the great story or the great series we have a huge industry you know everybody and their uncle is writing series and films like i i always let me let me backtrack a little when you ask what a good story is and um i usually go back to a formula i i i heard ascribed to borges and somewhere he probably wrote but i can't find it even though i have all of his writings it says art equals fire plus algebra mm. and if we think art in the term of storytelling, especially especially serial storytelling that I work a lot with, I find art to be, this is my own definition for our times. I don't think it's applicable to 30 years ago, but for our times, I would say that art is a type of series that makes you want to stop watching and engage back with your life. So it kind of pulls you back to life. So even though there are many gimmicks inside to keep you, like Netflix will keep you, you will know when you're kind of encountered something with a lot of substance you will take a break and you will carry that story with you and you will engage with the next one again or you will watch it and re-watch it because there is so much stuff that it resonates with you you can't shake it off and it brings you back it wakes you up to your own life that's the good definition of art it's transformative it's transformative it's awakening it's entertaining but it's not entertainment it actually makes you more alive. It makes you more awake. It doesn't. It doesn't distract distract you. It doesn't. You know the, the phrase we will entertain ourselves to death. It doesn't do that. So it makes you want to consume less. It's not kind of pulling you into more and more storytelling. Just enough storytelling to kind of become interesting in your long life experience. Go live, and then come back and watch something. But go live. You know that would be a good definition of art in this context to me. So it's not there to produce there to keep you glued to the screen. There is a deeper, deeper resonance there. Uh, even though the writers, uh, the creators maybe would want everybody to keep, but there is too much sub substance there for easy cons consumption. Then fire and algebra, like art equals fire plus algebra. Algebra really is about the skill. And it knowing that, you know, in science, one plus one equals two every time. In creative endeavors, one plus one can be 55 but not without knowing how to get there. So it's not random. There are rules and regulations and internal logic to things. And you can get to 55 or 132, whatever. But there is logic inside it. When you unpack it, it will not be completely random. So learning that craft and learning to understand the implications, the implicit level of logic in stories takes a little bit of time. You know, people get better at it. And that's something that can be learned, actually. Um, there are like screenwriting schools and storytelling, all of that, that can be trained 
even to, to get better at it. But then we have the fire, fire plus algebra. And, and that that blew my mind just when I started discovering that the difference between skilled people, both like if I have two writers, both are good at algebra, they really know the craft, but one is brilliant and one is not, but both are good. So what's the difference? And the difference is in the fire. And then what's that fire all about? And obviously it wasn't just one person is more inspired and they have more passion. I mean, maybe, but that's not the main thing. The fire I learned to understand in a different way. It has a metaphysical component to it. Mm. Um, and the best way I know how to ex explain it is the if you kind of find the common denominator between children and mystics. You know, that children and mystics have that, that capacity to see reality as it is without too many preconceptions about it. So when a child discovered something, and I've observed this with my, my niece and nephew, my the Turbo Twins, they're always in my lectures. They, I always learn something from them. But when they were small, uh, they, I, I, they would just get obsessed with things, you know, something these days, these days, they did, but had a pretty long obsessions with chicken, chickens at one point when they were about four years old. And I, I just saw how engaged they were with every singular chicken. Like they were not a category of animal. They were every single one was a, was a thing in and of itself, a fluffy animal. Every each one had a personality. They observed their relationship. They could tell you, look at what did what did they do today, and it it lasted for quite a while. So there is something with them engaging with what they were encountering without too many concepts about it. There were no concepts. They were just them and the chickens. And the flow. And then I would come back to visit them because they live in Switzerland. I would come there like six months later or something. And that was completely gone. Because if I would take them to the same, I took them to the same place and say, oh, there are your chickens now. They're bigger now. They're like, it's a chicken. And that, that alive thing became a concept. So that stands for every chicken. And that kind of uh, process we get with learning languages, in their case, many languages because they live in Switzerland, but just when we acquire language, there is there's something we, we get more overview over, over the world we are in, but also less connection to it. Yeah, we lose resolution because we create concepts that contain a lot of individual exactly. things. Yeah. And a good artist is a person who is able to recapture that seeing like almost go back to the child, like, what am I seeing? And forget what they know about it to, to rediscover it. And it can be about really anything. Like people, when they le learn how to draw, you know, they make me first, like, can you really see what you are drawing? Can you see everything that there is there to see, like in a literal way? And then you can kind of, kind of symbolically connected, um, figuratively connected to other things and well, like emotions and what does this mean? And then it becomes, a hand becomes an octopus or whatever. But to engage with that hand first on its own is an art in itself. Like, can you see properly this hand? And you know, when you go into alternate states of consciousness through meditation or through taking plant medicine or anything that can like put you there, trance or it, and then you look at your own hand and it's like you've never seen it before. That's that's a beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So I have so many things I want to say here because one of them is we know from cognitive science that the way we work is not. We know that we have a prediction engine inside of the world mm -hmm. and that prediction engine is very important to filter information because if it wasn't there, you would be overwhelmed by all the senses that you have. But this prediction engine is generative. Mm 
you basically recreate in your mind what is going to happen and then you can tolerate a little bit of difference between what really happens and what you predict to happen and that signal the error signal between those two goes up and sometimes it goes up a little bit and then it goes back down because your hand knows how to handle that uncertainty that it touched without actually thinking about it and if it's really important for the organism it goes up right to your consciousness and you have to deal with it and if it's too much you can even freeze mm -hmm. right fear is about not having too much surprise too much on, uh, on top of the surprise too much danger so dangerous surprise that can threaten your life and if it's really too much you, you go into freeze or other 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 states so that's that's one of the things i wanted to say because it's like the stories almost play on this vertical dimension of of surprise and predictiveness yeah predictability and surprise but i say the value of a data yeah. in an inverse proportion to its predictability a story that doesn't present anything new in a in a situation that you kind of understand the premise you understand but if, if nothing that's shown is new and i don't mean like tricks of the like plot you know they show up from but genuinely new perceptions uh they're just too shallow to to remember you, you've seen so many like them they're just not not um uh, they're not making us alert enough back to after we've seen them we are not more alert to life we are less alert to life because they kind of just confirm what we already know and we it, it dulls us it kind of numbs us out a little bit you know like pink floyd says oh you've become comfortably numb and stories that come through screens are a big part of that getting comfortably numb because they reinforce the known just too easily and nobody's doing this on purpose, I would say. It just what happens. It takes a lot for a person to cultivate the fire in the eyes. You know, they say the mystics and children have fire in their eyes because the fire burns away through the predictable, like concepts that are too settled. And um, it's really uncomfortable. The children are completely terrified all the time by you. Like they don't know what they are seeing. Everything can scare them. But even it takes a lot to step out of that comfort zone. And um, that's that's why having spaces of absolute silence and spaces where you train to hold a lot of contradiction and paradox in your own experience help them when you're actually creating something to invite all of these things in, in in the creative process so not everybody can do it it takes a lot i mean it's not a question of intelligence this is what fascinates me the most i've worked very very intelligent people very intelligent very educated people who write absolutely predictable even below average stuff i've write, written with people who may be you know let's say forrest gump my friend told me that's so forrest gump again and remember when he says i'm not smart but i know love mm -hmm. and there is something about that you people don't have to be the smartest one but they they simply have the attunement to to the moment and they can capture stuff so it's you need a certain level of intelligence to structure for example a tv show but because, because it's quite a task so but to be, you don't have to be an Einstein to do it. There is other, there are other layers of, of, of human capacity or other aspects of human capacity that need to be invited in. So intelligence is overrated in many cases when it comes to creating something that resonates with people deeply, I would say, in our society in general.
so there was another thing that was coming into my mind while you were saying this um, yeah, it's Christianity so when I look at the Trinity one mm. of the corners of the Trinity is the embodiment by Jesus mm. and that fascinates me the, the whole concept and one reason why it's so hard for me to accept Christianity is because it's so particular like it's not possible that it's really happened you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and basically you cannot become a Christian by, without accepting that it really it really happened at face value yeah yeah, yeah exactly and and uh, actually I've been thinking about it what it means face value mm -hmm. literal or not literal mm -hmm. Because that's one of the point of the story that it makes you think about literal or not literal, not being a distinction. But what I see in that is that, you know, the the way we we know Christianity and the way historically it it, it grew out of uh, a lot of things. It's not the same thing. And basically, what's happened there historically that there was a lot of mystics, a lot of thinkers who were orbiting around this neoplatonistic mm -hmm. system that didn't have any story. I mean, it had the, like, sort of like how the, the world got created through emanation, but it wasn't really like a, 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 a story that you could relate to. Mm -hmm. These were like very smart people trying to think about uh, how, why things are, right? Mm -hmm. But this this was not something that you could have made a, a system of mm -hmm. that would have resonated with people. Mm -hmm. So then this complicated metaphysics got boiled down, <laughs> boiled down, embodied and uh, made particular by the stories in the Bible. Yeah. And so, and, and the, the reason why those stories are so powerful is because they so, somehow very particular, but they connect you to the transcendent. Mm -hmm. And so these stories so, are not that many. Then exactly. We yeah, yeah, yeah. Myth, and they survive through eons, it seems like the story we mostly see on televisions are sometimes echoes of that, but very poor echoes of that because they don't capture the, the full scope they don't point to the full scope of the lived experience. So you say that you, the, these stories point to the transcendental. That's the absolute possibility is to be fully here and to be fully a part of something that has no body. Like, and you can experience that actually in a very lived way. It's not an idea. You, it's not something you imagine. You can have these experiences that take you there. But if you've never had them, <laughs> and then you write stories, but you, you don't have a clue. You can't tell a story that will point in that direction. And this is something that I'm looking at very much now when we talk about storytelling and AI. It, we, we assume just like AI is dropping into this neutral situation where we are human, we, we happy happy-going, lucky, happy-go-lucky human beings, fully fledged in their capacity, really. And then just AI now comes to disrupt or add to it, you know, but we really have to for a moment stop and see where were we just the day before AI hit the public? Like, where were we in our capacity to deal to just to even perceive the life in its fullness so are we as good as full perception or a lot of capacities we have as we were 200 years ago are we more are we less in many ways we are less 
in there in many ways we are just atrophying continuously because of the way we live and over over reliance on technology for sure for sure is atrophying capacity that exists in us but we are just not using it enough anymore so when somebody says oh, google maps didn't affect our orientation capacity are you joking People can, like, even when they look around, they hit the building in front of them, like, uh, the, the street lights. So it's myself. It, it's fascinating how it gets stunted and how it atrophies so quickly. And I remember just being in the US, not having GPS, driving a car, not, my phone was not working. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the ability to orient with the mountains, with stars, like, how did I know how to find my way home? In the, and I was really in, the, in Colorado, in the mountains alone dark no lights no towns i didn't even know where i was going and somehow i did that that will never stop to fascinate me and then when i'm here in stockholm i got completely lost all the time get completely lost all the time with my phone so there is absolutely there something that's that we are not using not something a lot of things that we are not using and I, I often analyze stories like how much of, of the spectrum of the human capacity are they even expressing? Because they usually are quite narrow in what they're, they're quite psychological, quite narrow. People are burdened by their psychologies, but there is something bigger than our freaking psychologies happening. <laughs> we are part of a bigger, bigger system and our psychologies are just, I don't know, a way we perceive it, but it's not more than that. Um, so stories are not really doing life justice, I would say a lot of the time, but those that do, they survive a lot longer and they're usually quite simple in yeah. a way they don't have short. to be yeah sure but they can be quite short quite and still hit hit it completely because they are distillation of a lot of experience i would say yeah, yeah actually so when john verrackett talks about this he says that the only modern myth that was invented from scratch is the zombie yeah <laughs> cool and both him and, and Jonathan Pajot has uh, thinking and uh, has been thinking about this and writing about it. And it fascinates me because usually when uh, people try to, to put a metaphor on AI, they say the golem, like this, this machine-like thing that uh, depends on us, uh, but it's somehow stronger than us. But I think the zombie is a better metaphor. And they applied to AI. That's funny. I would apply first to human beings of today. Of course. And that's then exactly AI where, I'm where I'm going with this. Of that. Yeah. And it's a product of the like, of where we are now. Yeah, it, it's a curious thing that we we kind of are happy to not notice what is being lost in our capacity, embodied capacity. And we are busying ourselves creating new new ways of engaging with the world through AI, but like stuff that we that's already available is being lost. So we will need crutches very soon to help us go through the world and we will need AI to assist us to do anything. I would yeah, say. yeah, yeah. So I call it the high high functioning zombie actually because it, you don't see it from from far. It's like the high high functioning X autism yeah. or yeah, you actually learn to deal with it. But inside you, you have that emptiness, but from to the outside you can show that you're normal. Functional, yeah, yeah, functional. absolutely. And, and basically the zombie is a disintegrating body. Mm -hmm. So even its cells are disconnecting from each other mm -hmm. and it itself disconnects from yeah. the world, yeah. except for this narrow scope of the food that it has to consume. Yeah. Yeah. And all the others, the zombies don't form a community. Mm 
they go in the same direction, but nothing happening between them, right? So of course the the, the myth was created because it somehow reflects. Uh... It does reflect a tendency, and and when you listen to people presenting metaverse as a as a playground for us to be when we kind of find that we don't have much to contribute anymore and we will be entertained to death as they say you know and that's that's an offer yeah. disembodied hooked up like uh, your mind hooked up into the world that somebody's created i i don't i can't imagine more insulting scenario like who are you to create the world for me who who, who died and made you god to, to even imagine what would be enough for a human being to experience, like the, the creators of metaverse, is the, the hubris beyond belief, I would say. Uh, just to, to, to believe that oh, game creators, I think they, they really. <laughs> the yeah, I mean, the, the metaverse is the is the 11 year old Mark Zuckerberg dream, yeah. why he was sitting in class and, and dreaming about going being somewhere else. And a lot of a... the time, when you listen back, when you listen to interviews, it's it's interesting when you two things I will say. When you say those like five big TV series, the the golden age of television, the complex stories, I I was a, like really fascinated with the people who created them, like how about their lives, like what was happening there to to give birth to this. And there was always a parallel story, actually lived in their life, real experiences that were transmuted into a story, but the thematically the, the they were the same. So I and I when I lecture, I give example like, this is what, what Deadwood is, this is what the wire is. This like these things happen to these people, and not in a bio, you can't see it with biographical connection too easily, but on the level of theme, absolutely they were going through these things. And then because they were creative, they created stories that were more, more interesting to watch than if they literally told about their lives. You know, they created characters that were more interesting than a screenwriter as a character. That's what the writer will do. But when they are connected, the resonance is there. And I believe that a lot of the time you can see this. I, I even when I started researching AI, and I also have like I started doing this even when I was doing my thesis in, at university. Uh, I wrote about chaos theory in literature, and chaos theory somehow, like information theory, complexity theory, and chaos theory helped me understand complex novels. So I kind of connected those two fields. And that somehow very easily led to transhumanism. I don't know how I ended up in those waters, but even in my 20s, I was like really interested in like, what are the roots, root ideas that govern AI research? Like what is there that hopes to happen? And what, what are these people all about? And, and I mean, Ray Kurzweil, even then he was creepy. Even then he was popping pills like crazy. And this was 20 years ago. He was like, I'm going to live until the fear of death the fear of the body was so obvious in so many of them. So when you say brilliant art has a resonance with the life of the person creating it, also these products like Facebook has resonance with this person's understanding of friendship, friendship or lack thereof. And I don't really remember the name anymore of, of the AI product that made waves months ago, uh, that had people really get hooked into AI partners. So this was already happening. It's not even like a year ahead. In the future, it, it has been happening for a while. So I, I, I might check up the name of the company. I don't remember it anymore. But the woman who created it lost a friend. And she fed, she couldn't deal with the loss. So she fed all the conversations, all the SMS into the AI to get a version of him. And apparently it was enough for her to keep him alive. 
you know she kept communicating with him and other people wanted the same thing my mom died my child died and it started from there and it evolved into this service for companionship and very soon people get really hooked and it turned into the sexual services as well of course textual sexual services or pictures with us but very quickly derailed and when they want because ethically it was so corrupt that it couldn't be worse than that what it was doing to people but people were already hooked into it so when they switched it off it created a lot of uproar because they really didn't have that in their own life it's so the story of her right yeah, the movie. exactly exactly <laughs> So it was a terrible substitute. And you, but you can see that this person, she wasn't somebody who, who accepted that. She protested again. Like her product is a kind of expression of a whole. You know, her product res responds to the whole. So a person who understood deep nuances of friendship would have never created Facebook because quantitatively connecting, like collecting people. And imagining that will create a lot of friends. This is what people found out. Like this is, you still have five friends, maybe, after all of that collecting. So these products, are, it's usually inter interesting to say, what is giving rise to them? What are they uh, an answer to? What kind of need are they an answer to? The person who is creating them, how comfortable are they in life, being alive? Can they suffer pain? Does the human condition, uh, are they accepting the human condition or not? And I believe a lot of people in the AI are not. They're suffering. No, no, I, I, I completely agree. Yet, what's surprising to me is that if I look at all the leaders, I would say I trust Mark Zuckerberg the most. Oh, you're good. No, he, he is in jujitsu. And I, I also went into jujitsu. It's an interesting story because it's related to Facebook. Mm -hmm. I often talk about this where I got hooked on short videos on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I remember that. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. And so, that was an addiction which pushed me to get rid of Facebook on my phone mm -hmm. and go to try it because somehow therapeutically I understood that so, sort of like this, the feed that I'm getting, it's my subconscious, mm -hmm. it's a projection. There is, it's so, algorithm it's so open, it's algorithmic and the algorithm gives me back whatever I want when I'm half, half asleep. And it tells me something and you can do something with it. So I'm, since then, I'm telling to everyone that you can use TikTok therapeutically, like a, you analyze your, your feed as a mm. gene and you can do something with it. So then that, that pushed me into jujitsu. Then I learned that actually Zuckerberg is into this. So, do you know, there was this big, big uh, story that Musk and uh, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to have a fight a cage fight that didn't go anywhere because Mark actually took it seriously. And Musk, for Musk, it was more like a publicity stunt, I guess. But Mark Zuckerberg is really into this embodied sport. Wow. And so it seems to me that like, like his, his metaverse dream is somehow his childhood self projecting something. Yeah. But there's so much money sunk into that, that he can get out of it. I'm, I'm pretty sure that somewhere he knows that it's a, it's a dead end. And something it would be a very damaging experience for many people inside. Like when it comes to kind of fully living fully as a human being, that doesn't seem to be offering that much opportunity. There was there was an interesting documentary 
on uh, Swedish television and such an unpretentious little documentary made for the youth canal. It wasn't even channel, youth, youth channel. Um, not a big deal. You will not find it on Netflix or anywhere. But they were just examining two schools of thought around schools. So you have completely digital Swedish school that gives iPads, no books, nothing to small kids already. And it, they are gamifying the learning process and it engages the boys. They are getting better at school. They are seeing results because we are educating a new generation of people for the new world. And they have a whole philosophy around that, which is entirely computerized and digital. And then there is this other school. No, nothing digital whatsoever. There is only one computer in the school and it belongs to the uh, headmaster. No teachers, no children, nobody within the uh, computer, only pen, paper, books. And the school is in the Silicon Valley. It's very expensive. And the only children who go there are the children of the tech developers at Facebook and Google. And the and it was stated, just it was just shown, it was not commented in the documentary, like deal with this fact. They will not put their children anywhere close the products they themselves are creating. And it, it kind of arrests my case. It was really poignant. It was yeah, really... I mean, social dilemma. It was yeah. Yeah, they several said of them. Several said, yeah, of them. Yeah. But these people already opted out. These were the people that, who were still making. So it's this the way the the humans a human a person's mind can rationalize that what I do for a living, and how that is okay, and I'm just doing my little task, and I can't possibly be a bad guy. Uh, but many many small contributions all over the system, and these are just just your regular people creating damage. Not you know we we imagine these mal mal malicious minds but I, I feel the most damage is done by just ordinary people doing their jobs yeah yeah you know I, I completely agree with it and this is for me the big paradox there was a big twitter discussion on this is that the big fear is this this uh, exterminating ai singularity catastrophic uh, exponential mm -hmm. growth which is basically the zombie yeah in the it's sense true. that it's a highly intelligent thing that can solve very complicated problems much better much faster than us so that's why it's so scary at the same time it's so stupid that it doesn't see that for example if it makes uh, paper clips out of human flesh that's not a good idea even though his goal is to make as many paper clips as he can. Maybe there is a limit to that. Because I understand of, what you mean. Uh, I understand, completely understand the logic and illogic of it at the same time. Uh, that narrative is there. I think it's good that it's there just in case, you know, nobody knows. I think that's the, and the only thing we can say about the future development of AI is that nobody knows what's going to happen because it can take many different, many different directions because of all, all the black box issue is fascinating to me. Like we can make it do stuff. We don't know how it does what it does. That in, in and of itself should be as alarming as hell. Like there really is a process inside an internal logic that is completely different than the human logic. If we can't understand it, we can't predict either way, either way what's going to happen. So I personally, it, if it happens, well, 
goodbye us, I would say. There's not much we can do about it. So I'm not pretty worried about it, but there are many steps on the way, even dealing with narrow AI and the damage in the narrow AI can create. Exactly. If general AI appears, it would just simply take over those tools and take but over- But it's not going to ha happen out no. of nothing. It's- I know, and, I know, but narrow AI is problematic and in and of itself. Exactly, but the thing yeah. is that since we put this danger out there, and now even like the, the prime minister of UK is talking about it and uh, Biden just had a decree mm -hmm. saying that now all big models will have to be registered in the US government. I I, I, personally, I find that that any type of this, like all kinds of discussions needs to be have about, about the AI because it's such an unknown entity and the alien nature of its processes is fascinating. Like it really... Mm. I had an image in my mind, like let's take just large large language models that are kind of siphoning everything that's written on the internet. And I had an image of an lotto machine. You know, it siphons those little balls of content of kind of coherent material. And it's at the same time a lotto machine, but it, inside it has a shredder. And it shreds it to bits and pieces, but it doesn't even shred it to st like strings of something that we can rec recognize as a small part of like tokens are not meaningful to us tokens are not syllables or letters tokens are what are they you know and then it reassembles them in its completely its own way stuff that comes out is well it, this looks like Shiny. a lot of ball but this thing what is this thing but apparently it makes sense through that process so that kind of mystery is fascinating i think we need to be humble about it nice. uh and really stay curious and completely explorative about it, not declarative. It's too soon to, to declare anything about AI. And uh, I, I find like we have these extremes in uh, the US, we wanna shut it all completely down. But in Europe, let's be the early adopters of, like there is absolutely no talk about the issues in our industry, for example, especially Sweden is the early adopter of the, anything technological. We wanna compete. And with my friends who are um, high-level executives in, in um, other industries, they say it's such a race to adopt AI into their, like integrated into their service out of pure fear about being left behind. So there is no conversation whatsoever at high level of management, no conversation about any possible downsides. So they're like fear-driven narratives on both sides. Like, let's stop this thing, let's completely integrate it because then we will be competitive. While I find it, calm down, take it, explore it. If we could yeah. slow it down enough to understand it better, that would be better. No, I'm, I'm all for exploration. Yeah. The, but the thing is, the social media AI, yeah. is, it's been there for 15 years. And not giving it's, us happy results in so yeah, many- Yeah, exactly. And GPT is not the first AI we, are, we, we encounter. But the, the social media algorithms are not improving on themselves. They are. Are they? Yes, like, can they really communicate? I don't know. What I understand with this is that the possibility of self-improvement and self-replication that may give us new phenomena when it comes to technology. Like we didn't have technology that really does that the same way. No, so no, no. It's, 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 it's just classical AI, but I don't know how to say it. It's, it's, yeah. it's been always there. It always learns about your desires but those desires you know you can separate in your mind you know when i'm half sleepy at night i have different desires from the day after yeah. and this is why facebook failed at 
optimizing the feed to me because mm -hmm. they they did something that that hijacked my crocodile mind mm -hmm. and didn't take into consideration that i will wake up and my frontal lobe gets mm -hmm. in control which sort of like a meta phenomenon can look at this and say the only thing i can do with addiction is just not buy it mm -hmm. because if it's there when i when, when i need it i will take it so i just delete it from the phone so and and so that kind of addictive ai is there and tiktok which is eating like the brain of the next generation it was built on the technology yep. so that's the first one because because on, on especially youtube i like the recommendation algorithm because it's sort of like a historical mm -hmm. thing that has a lot of layers and because it is not optimal it's good it, it gives me things that enough yeah it's, it's gonna but TikTok, up. Yeah. tiktok really just it just you know yeah. connects to you and whatever mm. your finger tells it it will optimize it and this is and in then, front this is in front of us and it's it's going really bad i think i think because because this our experience with social media algorithms was so bad and problematic on so many levels and mental health issue and political polarization, all of that has been hugely aided by these technologies. It wouldn't have never happened that quickly and that badly without it. So I think with AI and the effect it has on the mind, individually and collectively, we definitely should take it like really slow and seriously and, and look at it in a more mature way because we just didn't do any of that with social media. We just adopted it. And what's kind of stuck with me, what, what makes me uneasy about AI is probably that it is one of the most suggestive technologies ever invented and what it will attack. Like when it gets integrated in, into most of the devices and most of the apps, or even if apps will even exist, so whatever will exist, you know, it will, it will leave no room for not knowing what to do next. It will suggest you a solution. Mm. So there will be no unassisted thinking. It will assist our thinking and there can be profound consequences to that. It is in, on the surface, as everything with these technologies, on the surface it makes our lives more efficient, convenient, we quicker get to things, but efficient, convenient and quicker has not proven to give us happiness collectively and individually. Mm like we can really question those narratives profoundly now uh, to see that okay we have tools that make it even more like that do we really need that as much as we think or people don't like average person in the art they don't want more we are like already have tired minds we already have oversaturated minds the last thing we know we need is more content the last field we know is not is more whispering to us more attacking our eyes like Yes. Technology yes. to give us space and quiet would be much welcome, but it's not the technologies we are building. Yeah, no. And you know, my, my nightmare scenario is not the singularity, is that uh, generative AI will be unified with social media AI. And so you basically, now you go to Netflix, you, you, saw, you have recommendation algorithms that gives you some movies or series to watch. At least we are not watching it at the same time as you when it was television. Because when we watched it at the same time, the day after we went to school and we talked about it and it became like the object of connection. Right now it's not that because anybody can watch any series anytime, but at least it's like a 
a finite number of products mm -hmm. and the big ones at least are good enough to spread everywhere mm -hmm. but i can well, imagine now technologically a scenario on. where you go to netflix mm -hmm. and it just binds to your mind whatever you know i just you know it can be just mm -hmm. perceptual but i don't know you know neuralink it, it's been tracking your behavior exactly your and it and gives, it gives you, you a story you, for the moment your personalized video personalized storytelling is definitely gonna happen and there are like companies already working on that so everybody i could put myself in that episode on sherlock as a main character you know i could be the murderer the victim the sherlock himself like sherlock himself and a storytelling AI could generate a story pretty quickly. Now we are seeing what can it can generate. Video, it's still not that great. No, but no, but we're getting there. With images, it's amazing. And I mean, if my children's stories, okay, let's just keep it to the children. It does stuff you can't really tell that it's not written by people. So let's not be arrogant about how uh, how like um, how much higher above above AI we are as creatives. We are not. So it's doing a pretty good job. So I'm imagining really a pretty autistic world uh, we are heading towards. Yeah, so this, yeah me, the zombie. The this, this is that's, the zombie. Yeah, that's the apocalypse. Right? It's not, because it's not will yeah, exactly. It will yeah. completely disconnect us. Yeah. And, and it's are, it, it doesn't have to throw a bomb or invent oh, a virus no. or whatever. This is the, no. the way I, I it's going on. It's progressive. Yeah. Well, like, I just, if I was just talking to a friend before I went online with you and, and just, I told her, you know, I realized how weird my day has been yesterday, for example. Mm -hmm. So I, I got up very early. I had a lot to do and stuff like anything from paying my bills to doing administration for my company, uh, invoicing, answering emails. I did some creative work as well. Everything was done through a screen. Then I talked to my family. And I talked to my friends as well. And I and I did and I and I exercised in the evening. So I have five different screens: my phone, my iPad, my two computers, and my big ass white TV. So I just moved from one to the other. And even when I was taking a break, I was first doing some quiet meditation. And then there is a podcast I love that relaxes me. So even that came through my phone. I wasn't watching it, but it was speaking to me. And then I finished the evening exhausted because I was non-stop working almost with except for that little break and I do my yoga with my, my one of my best friends is a yoga teacher from England so she zooms her classes and I have her on my computer and on my tv surrounded I spend my whole day interacting with screens with people or with texts or with there was absolutely no human connection yesterday in flesh that was such a day even okay, today, I went out and I talked to people in shops and when I people around where I live. But tomorrow I'll go to a birthday like celebration. That's fine. It's beautiful. But there are days that I'm completely, and I'm not the only one, completely spending my life in front of a screen. And there is such there is a sense of of sadness that I can't even express about day spends like that. Even though I'm efficient and I'm in connection, but and I'm thinking. I myself, like I, I like speaking about these things because I really feel them. I mean, it's an embodied process. It's not like something I just have, have big ideas about. I actually live as a recipient of this technology and a user, and I'm being used by it, it seems to me, more and more. So there was a conversation I had years ago with my dad. I, I just talked to him yesterday about it. 
he lives in Belgrade and he goes to the post office to pay his, pay, pay his uh, bills. And I remember when I told him like, Dad, I don't need to go to anywhere to buy to pay my bills anymore. Everything is done on my computer and my phone. And he said something, oh, that's awful. I said, no, it's really convenient. And I, this it really went in, I think maybe five years it took from this is convenient to I'm completely locked in technology for everything I live. And I live in one of the highly, most highly technological countries in the world. Sweden, we don't even have cash money and everything is digital. So I, I went from liking it to being absolutely horrified by how my life sometimes look. I travel a lot for work, you know, and I connect with people, but then I come home and my work is a lot on screen. My family is in three different countries. My friends are spread all over Europe and America. Uh, I have, of course, some life here where I live, but because of the nature of this traveling life, a lot of my life is somewhere else. And of course, technology made that connection possible, but it also makes it completely disembodied. So when I, after having a lot of these types of conversations with friends and family, when we actually meet, and that's why I travel so much, I meet people, I make an app, put myself on the plane and I you know, meet and they come and visit. It takes a while to connect in a fuller way because you, you just re relate to the words first. <laughs> and then there is something about the smell of the person and just, just how they are in other dimensions that are not even, you can't even say what it is, you know, who knows what we perceive with our full senses and it breaks you down it cracks you open uh, but it's not an automatic thing it takes a little while to get there to really look in somebody's eyes and and uh, i feel a lot of that is getting atrophied um so yeah I, I find myself to be a guinea pig as much as anybody else for this technology and i'm not liking it i must say less and less for all the benefits it's giving me there there are there's stuff that's taking and mm. to have more suggestive technologies is not making me jump for joy, even for no. me. It really doesn't. No, and especially for kids, it's terrible. Yeah. Like we are, we 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 fight an almost impossible fight with Bell's yeah. daughters. She's eleven. She doesn't yeah. have a phone, but it's almost impossible to maintain because all her friends have mm. the phones. Right. And we see how the friendships disintegrate. Mm -hmm. Lie. It's terrible. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to the trauma thing, I feel like it, it has to be big enough, like it was for me on Facebook, to actually step out and use it for self-improvement, to make a drastic change. I mean, drastic. I, I think Facebook from my phone individually and there are people are even gathering in groups and creating new lifestyles there is a response to this exactly the mainstream will be captured there is no question about it unless, unless that we we create a revolution against it which will not happen it gives enough benefits and it gives enough emotional soothing mm -hmm. for it to placate us it really yeah. is the biggest like uh, what do you say the media is opium for the masses it really is yeah. passing out in front of the television in a pleasant really way that's what your words <laughs> you're too tired to engage it's not that you don't want but you're too tired yeah. so i'm i'm really ambivalent i made my choices in working with this industry not what not to work on uh -huh. and it definitely made my options smaller and the money the huge money you could get working in this type of storytelling it just 
I just stay away from it because there is a lot of that that I just don't want to contribute to. I don't want to use my mind to contribute to it. So at some level, we have to make those choices. Uh, You can still make a living, absolutely, and kind of remain in some sort of integrity by staying away from certain things. Up to a degree, if you're good at what you're doing, you will always have choices. But if you exactly so, I'm I'm just wondering, like with your skill set, you know everything about storytelling. You know a lot (laughs) about AI now. So what would be some kind of? It's it's hard. It's paradoxical, but it it will have to be an app Mm -hmm. because that's that's what we sell. What that, that that would counter this movement? Oh, I I think there are there are ways to to kind of engage AI in in storytelling in a really interesting, I would I would make that kind of AI. Let's make that kind of way. Let's I'll, I'll explain what I mean. People usually want to ex- use AI as a, an added writer to the room, like an extra writer. I'm your staff writer or whatever. I would use it as a devil's advocate, uh, just to challenge the precon. If it gets that good that it can do it, I don't know that ChatGPT is at that level yet, but. The, all of these obvious places that we get into storytelling, I want to kind of, have you thought about this? And I don't mean in a plot sense, okay, this character can do this, not at that level, but I use uh, these examples of stories about abortion or death penalty where people have very kind of clear-cut opinions and it's easy, I'm for abortion and I'm against death penalty. Well, sure, me too, but but let's see like what can we see there that it's not obvious and why have these things survived for so long and it kind of all, all be bigotry and like what's the signal what's the noise is there any signal in the positions that you can't accept as your own so i would like really ai could challenge the research process open up new avenues for research like go to Singapore and try to understand why they keep their death penalty and they argue that it's still working. And their opponents, not it's not uniform there either. There are people for and against it, but they seem to be saying that it's worth it to keep the crime at such low level. It's worth it. They come from a different culture, collectivistic culture. We are from West. We can't understand it. You have to kind of get out of your programming to even begin to understand their way of thinking. Then you have to understand the historical context they they live in, like with the opium wars with China and the West, what, what it was done, what was done to China through narcotics. You understand like how they like deal with it now. It's it's not coming out of the wake vacuum. So there is so much there to explore, to understand what is value of human life, singular life contra the value of, of many lives. So if we lower, lower down the crime rate, like so it's not justifying, it's not finding excuses, it's exploring, it's trying to understand the full spectrum of, of responses to a complex issue that human race has done. Mm-hmm. So AI could point us in directions beyond what's kind of the, the type of media that you would read in the West and confirm our values. And then it's up to us to walk that talk because AI could present an options. This is what you could explore. This is what you could, but you have to go explore it. You have to meet actually some people who represent that. You have to spend some time there physically with your body. You can't just think and talk about it. Words are shallow, words are empty. You have to be in an uncomfortable meeting with this. So a kind of, I'm getting excited about it because I could imagine oh, people doing this. Like AI is presenting you with the options to explore, and then you put your rucksack on and you go fucking explore them. 
And then you come back or you write your story in the process of exploring that. AI could be really useful there because if you have a writer's room with people from your culture, you will be thinking similar ways, but let it challenge us. But in order to do that, it has to wake up from the Western bias, from the gender bias, from the all the bias you can collect when you siphon internet. Mm -hmm. So how that problem will be solved, I have zero idea. But it needs to be solved for AI to be useful in that way because it will yeah. go to obvious places. Yeah, and especially because because the, right now the algorithm is not doing that because it's it would be harmful for the bottom line, right? You would yeah, spend less yeah. time on the app. But the, is... I, hypothetically, yeah. uh, I find that these kinds of processes, not it doing my storytelling for me and making it more efficient. The first uh, novel, Pharmaco AI, that was written like a person writing with ChatGPT3, it took two years to write. And the person, the writer, really went through a process of receiving something and then living with it for a while, staying with it, and then prompting something new. So it wasn't a quick process. It wasn't like ping pong between the chat GPT and the person. It was like, you say something, let me sit with it. So it took two years to write. It was an exploration of this. Like, oh, I, I saw how my mind works. I, I saw how language affects me. These are deep explorative processes, but it takes time. So anything worth doing that goes deeper will take some time, but AI will be sold to the storytelling industry as the efficiency enhancer. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else, actually. Yeah, and, and that I, I believe will be a problem because we will still it will still take time to create something, to live with something for a while, because we humans are not getting quicker just because AI is there. Yeah, exactly. So I, I... As you say, this, you know, my experience with, with GPT, I use it for writing. Yeah, there's a pseudo write I'm, mm -hmm. I'm using too. It slows me down. <laughs> it should. It's good. Yeah. It because could. I have to think like, okay, do I really want to say this way or a ah, nice word? I didn't, I know it passively, I don't know actively. So this helps a lot in that I'm not, not mm -hmm. a, uh, English. Uh, Origin, originally, I know I'm not an English speaker, so in terms of like opening my vocabulary, it helps a lot. But do I really feel that word, you know? And and I have like three versions I have to read through, and I have to merge them. So it really slows me down. But I I enjoy the process. No, I I believe that's the right way to do it. Yeah. But it will like if you get paid, if you are paid for writing, and you have the industry who expects output quickly, yeah. it will not reward reward slow processes. I don't think so. And I find like it, this is an interesting thing, like AI can help you download all the knowledge you need, you know, at a click of a button. You can speak all of these languages because it will speak it for you. You just do your thing and it will translate and, you know, put your mouth moving in Chinese way and you will sign Chinese. And it makes it feel like acquiring knowledge is a download thing. You just download like matrix thing. You just download jujitsu. I know karate, I know jujitsu, I know Chinese, but for all of us who are multilingual, the process of learning a language means it's not just learning how to speak. A really good speaker will have fallen in love with the people who speak the language. I, I had a professor at university in Belgrade who said, you will never learn another language really well and really deeply before you've loved somebody in that language. Because there are, there are nuances that this, that this drive to be understood and the drive to understand there needs to be a deeper connection. So there are people who are good at business English, but they are not great 
speakers they don't have their own style they don't have their own voice they're just good you know they have the instrumental use of the language but somebody who's had friendships in english with native speakers after a while you, your, your language just starts to soar it becomes poetic because they unlock the capacity in you living i mean just living in finland for example you have to learn that they speak in silences this is not learning the language this is learning the no language of Finnish language, for example. And the difference between Finnish, Swedish, and Swedish, Swedish huge differences in the way they express themselves, the build of, like, even though it's the same language. So not understanding what a acquisition of long, what it takes to learn something with your body so that it's part of you. It's, it's so much more than downloading things. Like, are you crazy? You think you speak anything that way? No, you don't. You have no clue about the culture. You know, have no clue about the people. So the slow process is usually important. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's beautiful. It's a good point to stop. I think we have a lot of lot of territory to cover. So maybe uh, we can have another sure. conversation. Maybe with Bea, we'll see. Yeah, I hope but so. That would be That would be amazing, right? Putting music, writing, and AI together. Yes. And making it more fun for the viewers when we start dancing. And... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which we do every time we meet. And I hope to meet you uh, real life too. Yeah, really soon. It's always yes. fun to be in person. Yeah. This, this is great as a bridge, but it's not it's not where you land. You land when you meet in person, actually. Yes. Absolutely. Thank so thank you very much, Tatiana. It was a great pleasure and I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of questions that I didn't ask, but it was just free, free flowing well, into the directions that were really nice. And it's so nice to finish on this point on love. Because I think it's it's really, you know, knowing by loving is you know the learning by loving. Loving or loving it's and it, this is where AI is not even this is not even on the radar for AI. Mm. Uh, this kind of knowing uh, so we have a lot if we want to get there there's a lot of you may have fall in love them. with other ais who knows you know uh, yeah. what do we know i don't, I, I wouldn't dismiss any of that we, we that black box thing tells me that we don't know enough to be to to mystery is there the mystery is there so we'll see what <sighs> but we know there's nothing there <laughs> so, in a certain sense, we know this is pure projection, whatever you think it is. But you know, when you go deep inside a human being, you find nothing as well. There are great seas of nothingness in us when we go deep, deep, deep. Ah, okay. Anybody who's done meditation will, will tell you this. Like it's, it's <laughs> exactly. So this is like the pure nothingness with no meditation to do. It's in front of you. It, it's part, it yeah. arises out of this world. I wouldn't dismiss anything that's... Ah, that's true. It arises out of this universe, this element, everything is, we operate with what's there and it's part of it. So I wouldn't, I don't even know what artificial means. In the, <laughs> it's part of planet Earth. How can it be artificial? Like, like <laughs> but I, I just don't want it to, 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 to suggest too many things on any given day to me. I need my space to think and to just yeah. be quiet. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay, well, thank you, Tatiana. Good luck to you both. <laughs> yes. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.